This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. We've got the amazing writer Anne Cadet on the show. Now, Anne Cadet writes the very popular and beloved newsletter over on Substack called Cafe And. Now, to my mind, what makes this newsletter Cafe And so remarkable is that Anne Cadet writes about New York City in a completely new way that is delightful heart expanding, full of humanity, full of wit, very funny, and no one else is even doing anything like it. But before we get into my conversation with the amazing Ann Cadet, I just want to remind everybody that if you want to dial into this podcast, Kurt Vonnegut Radio, and all that it has to offer, you should go over to Substack and subscribe to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. It's incredibly easy to do, and if you subscribe and you have the means, you should become a paid subscriber. It is $5 a month, and if you think about the work that I do and the amount of podcast episodes I'm producing for you and the quality of the guests and the quality of the conversations... And I really think where this show distinguishes itself is in the quality and the nature of the conversations. More and more, a thing I hear a lot is, nobody's ever asked me that before. I don't think I've ever talked about that before. So if you sign up and be a paid subscriber, then I get to eat. That's it. And if there are not enough paid subscribers, then I don't eat. But I still make podcast episodes for you. If I wasn't making this podcast, I would definitely be a paid subscriber. Now let's get back to my very special guest today, Anne Cadet, the writer behind the beloved newsletter, Cafe Anne, over on Substack. So part of what you're about to hear, what we're about to jump into is one of Anne Cadet's most recent issues of her newsletter, Cafe Anne. And it is about an elaborate but beautiful prank that came together over the course of a year and was so cool, in fact, that the New York Times wrote a big article about it. And they credited right at the front, Cafe Anne. So you're going to hear over the course of part of the episode, Anne Cadet's amazing, most bonkers story. But then, like, I am jumping in and we are taking the story apart. I didn't know if you might read from your most recent story, the most bonkers story you've ever written. Oh, yeah, that's a fun one. Let's do it. I love oh. my own stuff. Cool. I got it right here. I'm ready to go whenever you are. So this is called Metron Steakhouse Mystery Solved. A lot of my favorite stories come from readers, but this one beats them all. It's got everything. A mystery, steak, cake, lies, intrigue, crazy kids. It started in April with a letter from reader Adam C. on the Upper East Side. While looking for a place nearby to take his parents to dinner, he came across a Google business listing for Mephron Steakhouse. The place had more than 75-star reviews, raving about the incredible service, mind-blowing food, and especially Chef Mephron, quote, a visionary, a genius, a god among men. Fantastic steak in Venice. Mavron walked into the restaurant at the start of the night drenched in blood, carrying a freshly killed deer that he had just caught in the forest upstate, viewer Ethan Ding. He then prepared it in the kitchen and made it an unforgettable meal. I mean, that just alone is one of the most <laughs> extraordinary bits of text, right? Like, oh my God. <laughs> That's so funny, right? <laughs> but did this restaurant actually exist? A Google search turned up an ultra-minimalist website, but no other mention. It just sounds too good to be true, Adam wrote. I think it is worthy of investigation. Maybe a profile of Mephron if you can find him. Time for a field trip. And I love this because your engagement with your readers on Cafe Anne is next level. I mean, they are really helping shape the narrative. Would you have had the impulse to follow up on this if this person in the comments hadn't said that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are 
my ideas are even more comfort readers. They're like, Anne, you've got to check this thing out. I took a train into Manhattan to check out 224 East 83rd Street, the restaurant's supposed location. It was a standard Upper East Side townhouse, no sign of a steakhouse. And then if you're on my newsletter, you could see a picture of the townhouse. It's actually quite beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's a very pretty kind of pink brick and cream townhouse surrounded by a beautiful wrought iron fence. I interviewed a half dozen residents and shopkeepers on the block and showed them the Google listing. Several speculated that Mefron's was a, quote, secret restaurant, but no <laughs> one had seen any steakhouse activity. It's <laughs> on the roof, spying in the backyard. And it looks like a normal backyard, said one gen- neighbor, Jenna. I would have noticed if they were slaughtering anything. <laughs> like, what the hell? Call 911. They're killing animals. I knocked on the townhouse door. I didn't expect anyone to answer, so the young man in jeans and a tie-dye shirt who answered the knock caught me totally off guard. He gave me a hard stare. Are you here for the... He said. Behind him was a dimly lit room with a long sofa and perhaps the world's largest wall-mounted television. May, may I just ask you, I feel yeah. like this is a quintessential and cadet moment in your newsletter. You staring into a room, someone being surprised that someone's even there, and you just getting glimpses of what's transpiring behind. Is that a situation that you feel that you found yourself in the course of writing this newsletter? Many, many times. Yeah. I don't know what I'm looking at. I can't yeah. believe what I'm looking at. Something along those lines. Look, sense like you're not supposed to be here, but you are supposed to be here. Behind them was a dimly lit room and a long sofa and perhaps the world's largest wall-mounted television. For the restaurant, then, said? No, he said. There's not a steakhouse here? He shook his head. What do you want? An older man with a black tie joined him at the door, dressed in a cardigan and skinny tie, arms folded over his chest. I explained that I run a blog and that a reader had asked me to investigate a possible steakhouse at this address. Could I look around or ask a couple questions? I said. No, said the second man. A third fellow with long hair, leather pants, and motorcycle boots came up from behind and shoved past me into the house. Then the first man shut the door in my face. Do you feel intimidated at any moment in this? This guy came up from behind you when a letter jacket pushed past you. You know, I've been in much weirder situations. And some readers have written to me like, Anne, please don't do these things alone. And this is dumb, but I feel like I'm a character. No, that is not dumb. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel my character is like nothing bad can happen to me. I love that. And now, is there any character you kind of identify with? Yeah. Yeah. Big influence on me? I don't know. Because you're a fella, maybe you didn't read. I read all books. I was non-gender specific. Harriet Masai. I was going to ask you about that, but I thought that would be weird. But I totally wondered. Oh, my gosh. I feel like we are splitting the atom of Cafe Ann here. Oh, yeah. When I was a little kid, I used to go around the neighborhood and peek at all my neighbor's windows. And I would take notes on what they were doing and wow. furnishings. And then I would come home and report it to my parents. And, of course, they loved it. So your folks, they have witnessed this trajectory that was born of your earliest years. You have always been doing something like this. And like when I was in like third and fourth grade, I told all my classmates on a different question. And we just couldn't stop wondering what people were doing, what they were thinking about. I was born that way. I guess I've been trying, you know, when you write for other publications, there's always like the column you wanted to write and the column that they'll allow you to write. So I've been writing this newsletter in my head my whole life. This has never been published until two years have come out. And yeah, had- this is making me so happy to hear this. In my mind, you are an artist and you have incredible comic chops. There's this group of French writers, the Olympians. Have you heard of them? It's like they write based on the idea that constraint is a form of liberation. So this guy, George Ferret, wrote an entire novel without using the letter E. And... Their argument is that it makes the writing easier because you're constrained. You know what the rules are. You're so focused on adhering to the rule that you just write yourself forward. I'm wondering to what extent these constraints that you've experienced, understandably so, at various prestigious publications, how those might have helped you 
find or know the Cafe Anne inside you? I think one thing that's been very helpful to me is that I couldn't insert my own opinions or my own take on things. Yeah. I can only selectively present details and I couldn't comment on them. I just had to sort of like reveal by very carefully deciding what I was going to include and what I wasn't going to include. So my voice is there because it's me deciding what material to include. Right. But never saying like, this is awful or this is good or this makes sense or whatever. Right. right. And that's right. helpful because it made me be very careful about my writing and my reporting. But all I had was things that had actually happened. I couldn't like. I love this. This yeah. is a really yeah. exquisite form of, I guess you would call reportage. But what I'm thinking of is your Eric Adams watch. I just want to insert for listeners who don't know, Eric Adams is the mayor of New York City. And that to me seems like a perfect example of how you're able to cull through the details so that a portrait emerges of Eric Adams with zero comment on it. And I got to say, the ambiguity of that makes it more of a hook in the brain. Like I've meditated several times upon, as you pointed out, the fact that Eric Adams had a bracelet that said hustle when he was in Israel. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, and it it just is like food for pondering. Eric Adams, he really does things his way, which makes him a perfect cafe and right. Right. There's a quote you put at the beginning of each Eric Adams watch. You quote your friend. He says that Eric Adams is the first AI mayor. Yeah, the first AI generated mayor. (laughs) And what I love is you're not, I don't feel there's this zilch mean spiritedness. You are not harpooning or, you know, satirically, but you are really there to find the weird humanity in all these situations. Yeah. When I started Cafe Anne, I promised myself that it would never be about the issues, ever be about controversy. It would never be about finger pointing or blame because everyone else is really good at that. I found this is going to be a blog for fun. And right. I just want to look at every issue has those like pros and cons and this and that. And I'm like, but what's the fun part? That's the guiding ethos of when you're going into the narrative. What's the fun part? Yeah. That's incredible. Because it's not always clear what is animating, like you get a feeling in your stomach of deep humanity. Or I burst out laughing yesterday reading one of your post, but you don't know for sure what is the guiding ethos here that this writer is adhering to. So that is really revealing to hear that. I mean... And we can come back to the story you're reading because it's so profound. But just like as an example to listeners, you had one recent post about retired animals from playgrounds across New York City. You really report on it with this depth that is incredible. And you always come back to the story to find more. Like you will call some commissioner or something and get a quote from a very official person and it's just like, I didn't even know people were having this kind of fun anymore to create a playground like that. That's a good point. I always try to give these kind of seemingly frivolous topics the same treatment that I would get like a feature story about a high profile politician or a big company. Right. Everything deserves that kind of looking at it. and everything will reveal so much about ourselves and the human condition. I think it's more fun to take silly things seriously than to take serious things in a silly way. You know what right, I mean? Right. Yeah. No, yeah. that makes perfect sense. And that is a really profound gesture because you are looking at whimsical. I don't I would not say these are silly topics, but they're off the beaten path, left the center. Things that most publications would disregard as not worthy of our attention. So it says then the first man shut the door in my face. When I got home, I left several voicemails for the restaurant. Then I wrote it all up in a story. I posted it in issue number 71, a New York and NYC steakhouse mystery. I'm convinced that Mefron's steakhouse is a total fiction, I wrote, but that just begs the question. Who would bother to construct such an elaborate online prank, and why? A few days later, I got a call from Mefron himself. Unbelievable. But I think for you that this is not out of the ordinary because you've had decades of these kinds of weird experiences, right? But to my mind, I'm like, that's amazing that he called you. 
And so, one of my favorite stories I did is a reader who was actually my brother. He sent me some photos of this weird street tree in Queens. And it was always covered with these weird decorations. And the decorations always changed. And he was just like, I want to find out who's behind this tree. So I went up to Queens and it was indeed a very weird little tree with all these unusual decorations. And I started asking everyone in the neighborhood, like, who's behind this tree? And all the passers by, who's behind this tree? And everyone was speculating, but nobody knew. And they were like, we're, we've been wondering too, because the decorations have been on the street for years and they always change. And we all wonder, like, what's going on? So I left a note on the tree. And a week later, I got a call from the guy behind the tree. And he told me he thinks of the tree as his son. And he doesn't want anyone to know about him. So he goes out at like 2 a.m. to decorate the tree. Anyway, he met me at a coffee shop in Queens, and I got to meet him and his wife. And he's from some, like, Eastern Black country. Right. And do you know what his occupation was for a while? What's that? One of his main jobs is he was the, the PR and talent manager of the tallest man in the world. Whoa, that is amazing. The world tour of the tallest man in the world and the shortest man in the world. They're both in the book. Guinness Book of World Records. I've seen them, yeah. He was, yeah, he was like, they're nuts. And I'm like, how unlikely is that the guy behind this tree was us? I was just like, the story is just incredible. Just as somebody that's been studying narrative for quite some time, this odd symmetry there is just so loud and fascinating. And again, you could ponder it for a while because there's no easy conclusion, but there's got to be some connective tissue there between his experience with the tallest and shortest man in the world and this mysterious tree that he thinks of as his son. And I just feel like there's a crazy surprise under almost like every rocks that I pick up. So how many crazy surprises are we missing? That makes perfect sense. That's like a guiding philosophy. And I imagine that must make your life just super interesting. And I, I can't stop thinking about Harry the Spy now. You're always reaching out and touching stories or, or you're looking for ways in which you are intersecting with stories that perhaps other people are not looking for. And for you, the world, like the matrix, you're looking at that green screen, you're seeing narrative stuff just popping everywhere. Whereas most people are just going through their life, understandably so, and maybe not as aware of these potential narratives that exist. Whenever I start to feel like life has gotten stale and boring, which is not very often, I remind myself, anything could happen. Yeah. Anytime you like, even when you get out the bed, the moment you get out of bed, anything could happen. That's literally true. We don't know. We don't know. And have you, I'm guessing you've always felt that way, even if sometimes when you were writing your columns for prestigious publications, say business columns, you're not necessarily reporting on the odd angle or the odd story because that's not what they're paying you for. But still, you're seeing that potential there. Oh, yeah. And that was really frustrating because when an outlet pays you to write a story, they already know the story that they want. They're right. paying you to like, go get the story that they already have in mind. Right. You know, I'm writing for a publication. I'm not writing for the readers. I've written for the editor. My editor is happy. I'm happy, but my editors have integrity too, right, you know, right. so I don't feel like I'm violating my values or anything, but you know, like, yeah, my job is to make my editor happy. That's my MO when I'm writing for a real publication. Let's not say that Cafe Ann isn't a real publication. I mean, tons of subscribers, like the comments get filled immediately. You post every Monday and it's like people are waiting for their Cafe Ann installment. So I mean, it's as real a publication as I've ever seen. How are you feeling about it these days? You just hit your two-year mark. I'm extremely happy with it. Yeah. And it surpassed the expectations, not just in terms of like how many people are reading it, right. but how much fun I'm having. What have you learned in the process of doing it for two years? Yeah. For, about humanity or people or everyone says that Substack survives if it is delivering something of value to the people, whatever that may be, entertainment, comedy, information. What is it that you think that you might be delivering? What am I delivering? I simply have a nice ability to deliver an unusual way of looking at the world and unusual topics in a professional way. Yes. 
That's it. So here we go. Okay. A few days later, I got a call from Mehran himself. Mehran, it turns out, is Mehran Zalali, a startup founder who lives in San Francisco. He offered to tell me the whole story if I agreed to keep mum for a while. This is part of a more elaborate prank, he said. This is just the first phase. We plan to do a formal reveal in the fall. I agreed to keep quiet. It started more than two years ago, he told me. Mehran was renting the entire townhouse at 224 East 83rd Street with more than a dozen friends. Call it a hacker house, he said. It was rented out to a group of tech people. Real yeah. quick, just to translate, because I'm not really a Silicon Valley person. I don't sense oh. you are, but as a journalist, yeah. I think you know more than most. He's a 23-year-old kid. He's calling a hacker house. I'm just envisioning a group of young sort of brilliant people with a ton of computers, like some version of the show, Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah. and they're pretty young than that. Like Mehran at the time, I think was only 20. He had dropped out of college and he, yeah, it's all these like programming coder. That was an aspect of the story. I mean, there's a point where you show a picture of him and I'm like, what? This guy, Not nothing against this guy, but it's like lovely to know that the younger generation has that spirit in them. That sense of fun and pranksterism. I agree because you hear so much about how the Gen Zs are so depressed and right. angsty and serious, you know. And no, there are a lot of young people having fun, which is good to it's know. Nothing but mad respect to yeah. Megron. Yeah, you said, call it a hacker house. It was rented out to a group of tech people, and I started making steak every Friday night or so. Just for fun, a housemate created a fake Google business listing for Metron's Steakhouse and posted a review. Several dozen friends and guests added their own. A few months later, they were amused to find Metron's Steakhouse appearing on Google Maps. We saw a lot of potential to do something funny with it, said Metron. They created a website for the restaurant and were soon fielding dozens of requests from strangers anxious to snag a reservation. So we created a wait list, Metron said. Guess how many names we have. A few hundred, I venture. Five hundred, he said. <laughs> we moved out a year ago, he added. It's now a sober living place. But the goal is, in the fall, we will launch an actual steakhouse. We'll have a real steakhouse going for one night, pretending it's always been there. I asked him to keep me posted and then forgot about it. It seemed unlikely that Metron and his friends would follow through on such an elaborate prank. I may ask, if I'm thinking yeah. about Ann Cadet's mind at that point, because, you know, I'm getting to know you more. You got a yeah. lot of stories going on in your life for professional publications and for Cafe Ann. Yeah. So you have this interaction with this person. I can imagine that would then go way to the back of the Rolodex of significance because you're like, he's not going to do that. I mean, is that a reasonable thought on my part? I really didn't think he was going to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have it on my idea list. I have an idea list, so it typically has like hundreds of ideas, literally. Yeah. And I'll go through them. And the way I do the next issue, I'm like, what looked like fun to write about now, right? Wow. Oh, my gosh. I feel like all writers should adhere to that. You have a list instead of most of us. We just, I mean, yes, of course, I take notes. But a lot of good ideas, I just let float back to the lizard part of my brain and forget about them. Yeah. But is that like... I just every idea, even super stupid ideas, yeah. you know, because you might have a stupid idea on your list. And then six months later, you make a connection with another idea. And you're like, now that's a good idea. Right. If for these purposes of these sort of inspo notes or whatever we would want to call them for you in Cafe Anne, are they best written in hand or do you keep them digital like in your phone? Oh, I use Apple Notes. Apple right? Notes. Yeah, and I just have a, a note that says story ideas, and I just add to it and add to it and add to it. I also keep a separate little blue notebook. Okay. But I don't want to take my phone out while I'm talking to someone, right? And if someone gives me an idea while we're having coffee, I don't want to take out my phone because that's awful. Right. So I'll write in my little blue notebook, and then every week I transfer all the handwritten notes from the little blue notebook to the digital file. And. Just on average, like how many ideas do you think you're generating a week? Like 50 or 10 or two? Probably about 10. 10. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. This uh, is great. And I'm glad it's not 50 and I'm glad it's not two. <laughs> That's so funny. Please continue. Okay. I asked him to keep me posted and then forgot about it. It seemed unlikely that Mafan and his friends would follow through on such an elaborate prank. 
To my surprise, I got a text message from Macron at the end of July. Hello, Anne. We have updates on the steakhouse that we need to discuss with you. I gave up a ring. They were actually planning to execute, having located a swanky event space to rent, and agreements from several dozen friends to staff the fake eatery on Saturday, September 23. Mehran himself would be cooking the steaks. They planned to offer reservations to everyone on the wait list, which had grown to 1,000 would-be diners. Mehran offered me a reservation on the big night so that I could write about it on one condition. I had to delete the story I'd posted, at least temporarily, it was now the top Google result when anyone did a search on Mehran's steakhouse. Mehran worried it would dissuade folks from making reservations. I gave this some thought. If I agreed, I wouldn't just be covering a story. I'd be aiding and abetting a massive prank. On the other hand, it sounded like so much fun. Okay, I said. I, lo- I, lo- I just love that passage. I mean, there's actually great ethical concern, not that I think you're violating anything, but you are absolutely, as a lifelong journalist, having to interrogate what it is you're doing and what the implications might be. Yeah, this would never fly for a straight business publication. Like, no. So I'm about it a little. Yeah, yeah I, I know you did. As we go through this piece, there are so many interesting moments or turns. And so I think it could almost be easy for someone to not quite get of what great import these things are. That's why I'm just kind of tagging them in our conversation for people to know. This is fun. Yeah. Mehran flew in from San Francisco last week to prepare for the big night. I met him in person for the first time on Thursday on a park bench in Union Square. And I was amazed to discover he's just a 21-year-old kid, a college dropout with a lot of energy. And then I have a little photo of Mehran. I love this. He looks adorable and yeah. sweet and young. And <laughs> so just young. the whole combination of this individual plus grand steakhouse in New York City. Yeah. This, I got to give him huge props for this prank he, and the yeah. vision on this prank. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The preparation he put into the prank was truly over the top. He wasn't sure what a steakhouse was like, he admitted. So he and his co-conspirators, Riley Waltz, and Daniel Egan visited several examples to get familiar with the genre. They hired a chef to consult on the menu. They booked the event space and wrangled a phone number with an old-school Manhattan 212 area code for the reservations line. They got health permits and a one-night liquor license from the city. Next, they called everyone on the wait list, explaining that while there was no availability at the Mehra's location on the Upper East Side, there was a, quote, unexpected opening at the restaurant's secret more intimate, unadvertised location in the East Village. It's like a speakeasy, they said. 120 guests took the bait. And in the days leading up to the big night, they scurried around the city ordering flowers, supplies, and ingredients for the four-course $114 menu, including 40 pounds of veal, eight dozen bottles of wine, and 100 pounds of steak. None of this came cheap. Mehran wouldn't say how much it cost, but did know that if most of the 120 guests showed and paid for dinner, he'd hopefully break even or make a small profit. You do the math, but I'm estimating it costs at least $10,000. Malrod also told me he had 60 friends volunteering to serve as hostesses, waiters, busboys, and cooks for the evening, most of whom were flying or driving in from out of town. He'd even rented a chef's uniform. I'm so excited, like very excited, he said. I asked if he was concerned that guests might discover the keeper and get upset. People are going to get great steak at a beautiful venue with well-dressed people, he said. That's what they want, and they're going to get it. It's like the joke's not on them. They're just not in on the joke that is happening around them. It's like reality theater. If I can just stop for a second and just say, my God, like, I love pranks. I've done pranks, you know. I've kind of come from that McSweeney school. This is canon, you know, this is really an incredible feat by Mayron and his friends. I just really need to bring people's attention to the level of detail and the high level of execution and the joy. He's not here to make fun of anyone with his prank. They're getting a great steak. It's a beautiful vision. Yeah, that's what I loved about him. It was the spirit in which it was done. Yes. Because a lot of people are like, oh... 
we're going to reveal how silly New Yorkers are that they want to get reservations at restaurants they can't get reservations are. Look how stupid they are. Yes. Not to steer it at all. This is just fun, right? We're going to give a fun experience. I, I wrote, if I were a guest and discovered the keeper, I'm sure I'd be delighted. But steakhouse people tend to be on the conservative side. I was still feeling a little guilty about abetting the scheme, especially when Mefron told me it was the publication of my original story that convinced them to actually go through with the prank. I definitely feel like I'm being a bad journalist, I told him. But I also feel that, I don't know, it's worth it. <laughs> Matt Brown said his only real concern was the quality of the meal. But I made steak like 10 times in the past month, so I don't think the food is going to be <laughs> right? His hope that his guests would enjoy a wonderful dinner and only later discover the deception, maybe on the local news. Well, for me, if it goes really well, that's a great story, I said. And if it goes terribly, that's also a great story. <laughs> Mavron, in turn, reflected that he is only 21. So even if everything went terribly wrong, he'd have plenty of time to recover. Love this guy. And <laughs> so excited for Saturday night. When it finally came around, I met my friend, Aharon, at a subway stop, and they walked through the pouring rain to the fake restaurant location on East 11th Street. We were impressed. The rented venue's grand limestone and raw iron facade, not to mention the imposing doorman, made for a very convincing steakhouse. Inside, four young ladies in cocktail dresses, Mefron's friends, of course, were manning the coat check and reservations desk. The entry was hung with vintage Mefron posters from past decades, along with black and white photos of Chef Mefron meeting the likes of Marilyn Monroe, JFK, the Clintons, and Barack Obama. And the, the photo of Mehran with Marilyn Monroe is so cute. The dining room, meanwhile, was a vast, high-ceiling, minimalist affair with a ghostly image of a giant steak projected on the back wall. The 42 tables were adorned with white tablecloths and vases of white roses bearing the Mehran's logo. A string quartet played covers of Lady Gaga, Toto, and Rick Astley. The guests of all ages were largely dressed in business casual, but I saw a few in formal evening wear. Our waiter, Sol, came by and introduced us to the restaurant. We have a number of locations in New York City, 13 across the Americas, and about 100 in Iran, he said. Didn't know Iran was big for steakhouses, I said. Oh, yes, said Sam. That's our homeland. We're proud of our Persian heritage. Myself, I'm a descendant of Cyrus the Great, king of kings in Persia. We're familiar, said Aharo. Sol introduced us to the prefix fix menu. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Nor do I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the bovine circle of life. The meal would start with a spring meadow salad representing birth and end with angel food and devil food cake, marking the afterlife. The sommelier will be by in a second, he concluded. If you're looking for something non-alcoholic, I'd recommend the tall glass of milk, Mehran's specialty. Oh my God, I love these lines. Yeah. So how was the food? I'm not a fussy eater, so I'm not a good judge, but overall it was excellent. The salad dressing may have come from a bottle. And the veal meatballs tasted like standard meatloaf. But my favorite portion of ribeye steak and rosemary potatoes were flavorful and perfectly done. The service, meanwhile, was charming and attentive. Our water was refilled a half dozen times. There were snafus, of course. The sommelier came by for our drink orders after the salad course. The steak was delayed and cool upon arrival. Dessert appeared while we were still eating the steak. I couldn't get a cappuccino. At one point, the ventilator stopped working in the dining room filled with smoke. Can I ask how smoky that got? That's smoky. Okay, okay. And we're like, huh, that's something going on, right? But I had to credit Mehran and his team. It was as good as many fancy restaurants I've been to in New York City, and these kids were just winging it. My favorite part of the evening came at the end when our waiter revealed that he knew me. I'd interviewed him by phone last year for a business publication about his startup. We're doing really well. We closed out a round and we're starting our Series A, he said. Not your typical reveal from a waiter. I got to note, that is incredible. Like, that is a way in which Cafe Inn, although I guess the interview might have been for a different publication that you did yeah. with the waiter, but the way in which the stories are all around you, I mean, that's incredible. Were you stunned? I mean, or was it? I was so stunned? happy. And I yeah. also thought that he didn't tell me until the very end. Right. Very classy. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. 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 It's it an unbelievable moment in this story. Yeah. So fun. 
Before heading home, I waited outside the restaurant to interview some guests. The first to come to the exit were a husband and wife couple. They live on the Upper East Side, just two blocks from the original Mehran's location, they told me, and had been trying to get, reserva- to get a reservation since they learned of the restaurant in January. Then we got a phone call, said the husband. I decided not to include their names or photo in the story for fear of embarrassing them. I thought that was really cool of you, by the way, yeah. which I know you would have done, but I just, I love that little touch. They said, we have an opening. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. They've been to a lot of steakhouses, they said, and the food in Macron's reminded them of a legendary steakhouse they'd visited in Florence. It was interesting, the minimalist design, the husband added. It's almost like the MoMA, clearly designed in a specific way that you're really focused on just the food, not distracted by other stuff which I thought was kind of cool. How many stars would you guys give it? I asked. Give it five stars, said the wife. Five out of five, for sure, agreed the husband. I'd definitely come back. Just to be curious what their new menu might be. I have a feeling this is not their menu all the time. I'd be curious what Mehran is up to eight months from now when we get back there. I'm sure there will be another long wait. I thought about telling them the whole truth, but they looked so happy. So I just nodded my head and smiled. Perfect, I said. Wow. Bravo. I also just love that last gesture of yours. Again, I would never think of you as someone that was trying to humiliate other people. And so instead you let those people and their enthusiasm, which I think is founded, you let them have their good feeling. You know, there's something really cool about a story that can do that. In a weird way, storytelling is such an essential component of the story you're telling. It's incredible. You're laughing your ass off at different points. I am as a reader, but I'm, there's no mean-spirited kind of thing. And if anything, my humanity is enlarged. What that guy demonstrated is a rare humility. And most people want to talk and give opinions about things they don't know anything about these days. But this guy's saying, well, they're the restaurant people. They're the design people. So let me try to figure out what is it they're trying. It's a minimalist thing. And we're supposed to focus on the food. I love that human quality. Yeah, I agree. How long did it take you to write the piece? What's your process for assembling a piece like this? I used to struggle as a journalist a lot with trying to arrange the story for maximum impact. And editors really encourage this, right? And... When I started Cafe Anne, I came up with a guiding principle, and that's just say what happened. And the reason I like that is because typically when I'm reporting on a story, I'm surprised by what happens. And a lot of the story for me is like, oh, my God, I did not expect this. And I like to share that adventure with the readers. So I feel like just straightforward chronological order. Right. Talking about what happened and what it was like for me is... Not only the best way to deliver the story, it also happens to be the easiest way. And I love when the best thing and the easiest thing are the same thing. That's like a philosophy for life. I know. Do you have other maxims like that, that have emerged from your writing that you apply? Another one that's very helpful for me is a maxim, don't push, don't pull. So if you had to create a little scenario so that somebody would want to get, wrap their mind around that, you're talking yeah. about don't push, don't pull with the story. Is there something to like letting the story emerge in some natural components yeah. so you're not shoehorning it into some shape? Both that and both in reporting the story, if I feel tired and I don't want to keep going, I'll stop. Yeah. And like, I'll be fetched again. If I'm interviewing someone and they seem reluctant to talk about something, I don't push or I don't try to pull information out of them. Like I feel the right story is the story that wants to come out all by itself without me pushing or pulling. If I'm pushing or pulling, that means I have something specific in mind. Yeah. Do you think about your endings? I feel like your endings are always so interesting. What are you thinking about there as a writer when you approach them? Or do you do a technique where you write a whole bunch and then you always just back up and cut off like the last hundred words? You You know, I had an editor, they call like a good ending, the kicker, right? Yeah. And I had an editor tell me once, if you don't know the kicker before you start writing, you need to do some more reporting. But often while I'm reporting on a story, someone will say something or I'll think something like, there's my kicker. So you had the kicker for this piece 
I guess by the end of that night, right? Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Are there other ways that you think about the way that you assemble your stories that are either similar to journalism or different? Because I know you said Cafe Anne is something that was in you your whole life and you finally get to write it. What is the composition of your narrative in your mind? What are you trying to achieve? Like in the opening, you're not using the journalistic lead technique, I don't believe, right. are you? Yeah. No. 20 years, I wrote for a series of publications that were all owned by the same umbrella organization. And they had a formula. It's a great formula. It's very specific. And I was really good at using that formula. And my editor would have other journalists come sit in my cubicle and I would explain the formula. And I, I understand why that formula is a good formula because it accomplishes the purpose of delivering a large amount of information in a very organized way. Can you talk about it or is that your secret formula that you'd prefer not to share? No, because I never use it anymore. I'm like, oh. dang it, I don't need to use that anymore. Okay. Like if I handed in a Cafe A story to one of those editors I used to work for, they'd be like, can't write it like that. Is there a kind of template in your mind for how a Cafe and story works or evolves from the front end? Yeah, I guess some elements are, one is I don't know what's going to happen when I leave my apartment, hopefully, right? So anything can happen. Yeah. Uh, I try not to have anything in mind and I try to like be really wide open to whatever might come up. And then letting that happen, which I'll sometimes means if I want to talk to someone about something specific and they want to talk about something else, we'll talk about something else. Right, <laughs> right. And that's hard sometimes, but you know, the truth is always more interesting than whatever I had in mind. Always, 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 right? And then to write about it in a way that I am not pretending that this story is like objectively out there, but this is my experience. Right, right. I'm not pretending that there's actually a story out there that is the truth of what happened. I'm like, this is how I see it. This is what it seemed like to me. Right. You know? And and you're yeah. wearing your journalistic serious hat. Like you're treating something seriously that perhaps others wouldn't. So topic is also very important. You know, I would, even if I've had a chance to, I would never write about a celebrity. Jay-Z was about, you know, you would let me write about the craziest, weirdest thing about Jay-Z that nobody knew. Yeah. Uh, I would never cover celebrities or politics or entertainment or sports or any of the stuff you can get anywhere else. In order to illuminate the cafe and way forward yeah. of gathering stories, do you need to almost put blinders on to some of these other things in the society that people put their attention on? Or do you also consume all that stuff plus the cafe and world? I have to keep up on current events. Yeah. I have to know what's going on. Yeah. Because the thing I write about is in the context of what else is going on. And even if I never mention it, I need to know what other associations people are going to be making, right? Yeah. For what the bigger picture is, even if I never mention it. It's so important. Yeah. I would, couldn't do my job if I read the New York Times every day. I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I read a lot of substamps every day. Right. I read a lot. I'm taking in a lot of information that I would never mention in my newsletter. But it's important that I am part of the world and not some eccentric weirdo who is living in a cave. Makes perfect sense. And I think it's really a credit, the degree to which you do never write about those things, but are aware of them, that I would ask you that question. I mean, of course, your stories intersect with all other stories that are going around us all the time. And you have to be aware of that. Yes. Is there anything else that you think about in the way that you construct a cafe and story? Alfred. This is another journalistic rule that I break. It's I did this with a mainstream publication, I would be fired. But with every story that I write about a person, I send them the whole story. And I ask them, is there anything in here that's wrong that I need to fix? And is there anything in here that you don't feel comfortable being in print, right? That is profound because that's a lot of work that's on your part. Journalism. Yes. And here, here's the crazy thing. No matter how silly or weird people sometimes look, 
Mm-hmm. I've never changed it. Wow. It's so amazing. They're like, this looks great. I, I love knowing when the story comes out that they're happy with it. And I, I used to see, and I think a lot of journalists do, my relationship with the person I'm writing about is being adversarial. Yeah. I'm going to put stuff out there that they don't want anyone to know. Right, right. right. But I feel like people are very good at explaining who they are if you give them enough room. And they can do it far better than I can. And I used to have trouble sleeping at night because I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. This going to come out tomorrow and this person's going to read it and they're going to be upset, you know? And I feel now it's like my job is to help whoever I'm writing about tell their story or explain who they are, right? And we're working together to create this article. And I trust that they want the truth as much as I do. They want to be known. People want to be seen and heard. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the great gifts you can give to another human being is to really pay attention to them and, like, listen. Yeah. If I could, I would bump out every single person on the planet and all the animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, 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 I think this is really one of the most profound things I've heard. Just thinking about storytelling narrative and what you're doing and the fact that you give the final finished piece to the individuals who are a part of it and you get them to write off on it before you go to publication. Is that right? Yeah. Again, bad journalism. Right. No, I get that. But good humanism, great humanity. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say, I'm not doing investigative reporting. I'm doing something different. What is that different thing? I guess a lot of people go into journalism because they want to expose wrongdoing. And there's a very, that's so important. Our society and our government would not be functioning properly if there were journalists who made that their mission in life. I do not enjoy that. Other people can do it better than me. And there's a lot of people doing it. Right, right. You know, and... um. To just have that in the media is to provide an incomplete picture of what is happening in the world and by nature of it being incomplete, it is not accurate. And the role of all of them is really to reflect back an accurate picture of the world to the readers. So if everyone's pointing out the wrongdoing, someone's got to be providing the other information about what is happening. And it doesn't have to be all, you know, Old ladies volunteering to give snacks to puppies who have diabetes. Right. But there's a verbal of other stuff that it's also part of the reality of the world that isn't covered very much. And I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to do that. That's incredible. If you were to give the kind of writing, I mean, what you're saying makes perfect sense. We hear about this a lot, how journalism Uh, not casting aspersion on journalism, but it does by necessity almost cover the terrible and worst things that are happening to apprise people of danger, et cetera. So typically news makes people feel real funky. That's why they call it doom scrolling on Twitter back when Twitter worked. But you are saying as a writer and as a journalist in your own way for Cafe Ann, there are all these other stories, but it's not a binary thing where it's like, oh, this person helped this old lady cross the street. No, 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 no. There are complex narratives that reveal our humanity in interesting ways. And those stories aren't being told. If you had to give the genre a name, would would anything spring to mind? Oh, that's a good question. Wow. Um, What can we call it? You know, a lot of people have called my writing quirky. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. no. In my humble opinion, that right? is a disservice. Yeah. yeah. Um, sometimes they'll call it human interest. I don't like that either. It sounds really boring. No, no, no. Wow. We need to come up with a new phrase. Yeah, like the equivalent of gonzo, but for what you do. You know, something that has like that notable quality to it, a, a name of a genre for you. Yeah, yeah. We'll keep... There's a number of us out there, right? Michael Estrin, who you've also had on the podcast. Yes, love Michael. Job. He has a different approach and a different style. Right. He's looking at the same same area I'm looking at, right? 
Yes. And so I would say somehow, and the word humanity doesn't need to be used, but it is about the essence is about the humanity of all these people and these experiences and what's going on in the society right here. Yeah. Kind of heart swelling, which is the hardest thing to do, I think, for a writer. The most challenging, at least like in a novel, how to make your reader's heart grow. My favorite writers is Tolstoy. He presents complete characters and he loves them. Yeah. They always said in our creative writing workshops and our fiction writing workshops, you developing your capacity for empathy and to put yourself in other people's shoes. I know with the rise of a certain kind of politic over the last couple of years, the word empathy has been maligned a little bit from the far left in academia. And I get that because they're saying, well, this has simply been a component of the status quo. So if empathy is so great, it brought us to this point where things are not great. Maybe we need to re-examine the ingredients of the recipe we're trying to cook. I'd love to hear about your relationship to humor and comedy, because you are one of the funniest writers I've ever encountered. One of the most hilarious line for line you are punching at a very high level. And you make me laugh out loud in a room by myself, which is like the ultimate test. Yeah, uh, I love hearing that. Yeah. But like, what, where's that comedy coming from? Do you know what I hate? I hate humor writing. Yeah, when it's supposed to be. Right. And I've actually tried humor writing. It's really boring. And humor just naturally comes out of what is actually happening. It's very funny. Right. I, it's like, I, find almost, I find a lot of things that maybe I shouldn't find funny, very funny. Yes. You know? Yeah. Also so, horrific, too. There's, there's such a fine line between comedy and horror. I, I always yeah. default to the laugh, but. Okay. Yeah. You know, George Saunders was recently talking about on his Substack, he wrote a piece about humor and, and comedy. And he's one of the funniest writers I've ever encountered. And yeah. he talked about the fact that his comedy was almost incidental to his writing. And uh, he had a specific way of talking about that. But in my mind, a great George Saunders story works like this. I was talking to Eggers about this. He makes you laugh the whole time. And then at the end, he just breaks your heart. And you could actually cry a little bit. But he used the humor to soften you up and lower your defenses so he could (laughs) access your heart and do something and make you have a deep feeling. Does that strategy resonate with you? Do you feel that you might be? No, it's okay. not consistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really try to avoid trying to be funny. Yeah, that's the worst, right? That's one that don't push, don't pull things. Yeah. I'm going to turn that into maybe one of my more daily like mantras. Do you have three subsects that you love? And if you could maybe just tell me what it is that about them that lights up your heart? I've been thinking about this question about the three substacks and the trouble is most of them have already been mentioned by my peers that you've just interviewed, right? Right. Is it okay if I put all my eggs in one basket and just recommend one? Yes, anything. Okay. I just learned a technique from yeah. you. We're going to do what you want to do cool. because I'm, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my favorite newer substack lately, although it's not that new, but it's pretty new for me. I've just been following it for like, maybe three months, is uh, Rob Stevenson with Brooklyn. He's a photographer, but he rents a substack called The Neighborhoods. And every week he'll go out to a different New York City neighborhood and write about it. But look like Cafe Ann. He doesn't interview people. It's not an interactive kind of thing. There's a lot of history to each neighborhood. And then he takes these photos that just make me laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And typically they'll just be like, Photos of parking lots, yeah, how abandoned lots, and they're just so funny. What and you don't hear that a lot about photography. What is funny? You know, because it just captures just like how weird people are <sighs> without ever having any people in the photo. Wow! Right? There was one just the way someone has decided to decorate their house or a sign on a building. It's just funny. His writing is also very low-key, very clever, but not trying to be funny. And a lot of his history, like funny little stories that are actually like good little stories, you know, about each neighborhood. He doesn't try to tell the whole history of the neighborhood. So I have the impression, although I've never talked with him, that he is doing an enormous amount of work. Yeah. With a couple of these little stories. Yeah. He's had the like six of like mountains of all history to come up with a few little sparklers. And he always profiles neighborhoods 
sometimes that I've never heard of. And wow. I've got been to every neighborhood in New York City. And a few times after he's written about a neighborhood, yeah. I've never heard of I've gone out to that neighborhood and I had such a good time. So for me, it's a really good like tip sheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just like off the beaten path. It's just like New York City on a different planet. I feel like this is the ultimate compliment coming from you. That you're giving him props. And what you're saying is it must take a ton of work to distill and find these little nuggets and make it look easy and just put them on the page for you. Exactly. I would bet a million dollars that he puts twice as much time into his weekly issue than I do. I don't know for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sense of like what it takes to pull this kind of thing off, I'm super impressed. A little like Jillian Hessen notes. Right. You know, she said, look easy, but I have talked to her and I do have an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the name of the substack is The Neighborhoods, and the writer is Rob Stevenson. So if you just Google Rob Stevenson, The Neighborhoods, it's the first Google result. Cool. Is there any note of optimism that you would like? to send out to the world or to the people. This is something I've started asking recently because everything is so grim these days. And it's yeah. really amazing to hear from people what is an upbeat insight they might have. I want to say that we have all these examples of people doing terrible things everywhere we look. And then everyone I meet is really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much everyone meets really nice. And the world's supposed to be this horrible place. But when I walk out the door, it looks pretty good. So I'm like, well, there's this narrative out there, but what's my experience? And pretty good. I know that's not everyone's experience, but. I think it is for me oftentimes. I think that kind of cognitive dissonance is something that's very of our moment that a lot of us are struggling with because we're getting more information than we ever had. Yeah, we're living more in the, the idea of the world narrated to us rather than our own lived experience. Some people don't actually have very much lived experience anymore because they're tuned into the news and social media all the time. And that's the world that they live in. And they would do well to walk out the door and look around and talk to their neighbors. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Ian. I'm a huge fan and I just love talking to you and I have learned a lot. Well, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you very much. I loved your questions. I felt very relaxed. You know, Michael and Alex told me you're going to love talking to Gabe because he's going to help you understand what you do better. Okay, so that was amazing, right? I love that conversation with Ian Cadet. So now is when you go over to Substack, and I will put a link in the episode notes as well if you want to follow the link to where I'm about to direct you, but you should subscribe to Ann Cadet's newsletter, Cafe Ann, which comes out every Monday morning, like clockwork, with these incredible stories, like the one you just heard. And if you are able to support Ann Cadet, become a paid subscriber to her newsletter, That will enable her to deliver more fabulous stories to you. You heard her say she's at the two, she's already hit the two year mark with her newsletter. This game's on and it will be going for quite some time. But the kind of work she does for this, to me, that seems like a lot of cool work. It's a joy in her heart, but it seems like a lot of work. And it seems like the least somebody could do is to pay her whatever that small number is, that is a monthly payment for her incredible newsletter, Cafe Ann. And you can also join the community because she gets tons of comments, like tons and tons of comments for every issue of Cafe Ann. And you can join in the community, join in the dialogue. Everybody that's there is super happy to be there. It's not like they're there, but they're looking for the next place to go. No. This is where they want to be, and this is where you want to be. So go subscribe to Cafe Ann over at Substack. Now, we got a couple episodes coming up back-to-back with some incredible guests. The next one is with the Jason Zeneman, the New York Times comedy columnist since 2011. Come on. We have some fascinating conversations about 
amazing comedians and comedy podcasts. You don't want to miss it. Then we have my interview with Daniel Gumbiner about his newest novel, his second novel, Fire in the Canyon. Now, Daniel is also the longtime editor of The Believer magazine. And we also have an incredible conversation that opens up into some very special vistas that come as a surprise and that have really stuck with me. Then after that, we have Lincoln Michelle, amazing novelist and also writer of your favorite newsletter, Countercraft. There are more. I don't even want to recite them all, but they're coming at you one after the other as soon as I can get them together and fire them off to you. So this is your reminder that you should also become a subscriber to Kurt Vonnegut Radio over on Substack. And if you can afford to be a paid subscriber to support the work that I do for you. Okay. See you next time. Peace. Look forward to seeing you next time. Peace.